Let's pray together. Lord, we're about ready to uh, enter into your word, your self-revelation to us, uh, your word that points to Jesus, your word that uh, is good news for our life. And Lord, in these moments when your word sometimes seems obscure or simplistic, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would reveal to us what it is you're saying, uh, that we would hear you, uh, not only what you said uh, a long time ago, but what you have to say to us sitting here now. And I thank you in advance that you, your word speaks to uh, every single one of us, God, where we're at, even if we're all at different places in life. So we pray for your help to be open in our hearts and in our heads to not only hear you, but to receive you, and to say yes to you. Amen. Friday morning, I uh, was trying to get some reading done. The older kids were off at school. I think Corey was on a run or something. And so it was just Samara and I, my four-year-old, and uh, I'm reading, got kind of a blanket on my legs, and she wants to play doctor. She loves to play doctor. She has a doctor kit, and in the doctor kit is things like a stethoscope and a pretend syringe and calipers, and then she put all this other junk in there, like old splints from Sophia's injuries and, you know, stuff, just stuff like that. So it's all in there, and she wants to play doctor. I say, fine, just, hey, my leg is hurt, so then I'm thinking, I can read while she works on my leg. You know, she's kind of tickles. It feels funny, so whatever. So she's doing that, and she's like, I hear this, Mm-hmm, right, yes, I'm very, very interesting. I'm just like <laughs> chuckling as I'm reading. And then, and then in this creepy four-year-old girl voice, she says, hold still, Daddy, because now I'm going to cut your leg off. I'm like, <laughs> what? I mean, so if, you, if you're a filmmaker out there, I've got your next horror title, Dr. Samara. I mean, it would be a horrifying movie. It got me thinking about this interview I heard. This is all going somewhere, trust me. This interview I heard with a Civil War historian, and this Civil War historian was uh, specifically writing on Civil War field doctors. The Civil War produced like a perfect storm of destruction for humanity because new technology by the end of the war was being introduced, and specifically the Gatling gun, and yet military tactics didn't catch up to that yet, so you've got a bunch of dudes lining up in rows, and we're going to do like, because they're used to like muzzle loaders that take minutes to reload, and so you've got all these guys like falling down with all these injuries and broken bones and, and gunshots, and simple flesh wounds could just be completely disastrous back then. And so this historian looked at what, the, what doctors actually knew back then and how they trained field medics. And the way that you got qualified to be a field medic or that you ranked up was how fast you could apply a tourniquet and how fast you could amputate a limb. I mean, they, they, their assessment was basically like if it was a compound fracture or worse, it was coming off. And the reason for that was uh, they didn't have time to look at everybody. And frankly, uh, back then, the way that things got infected so quickly, uh, the way that they didn't have the technology to set bones correctly or, or take bullets out well, um, it was just a matter of survival. If they were able to stop the bleeding and cut off the limb, people, I know, right? Gross Keeley, right? Um, your mom probably has stories, you know, but... Uh, uh, it, it could save a life, even though it's not, by our standards, at all good medicine, right? Hmm. Thou shall not murder. The sixth of ten commandments. Thou shall not murder. Again, why is that in the top ten list? Is that really God's best 
for human thriving? Is that all he has to say about human life? Really, just don't murder? If the Ten Commandments, as I've been saying and arguing for all along in this series, if the Ten Commandments really reveal to us the heart of God, is this God's best for us? No. (laughs) Thou shall not murder is like a tourniquet and amputation move. It's that type of solution to a much bigger problem. At the time that God gave this command, it was the most people could handle. Commanding something more would have been like telling a Civil War field medic to perform brain surgery. You have to appreciate that the time that this law was given in the ancient Near East, that even though nation-states and kings were on the rise, the real fabric of society was run by tribal factions and family agendas. You kill my sister, my brothers and I are going to come and take two of your people, okay? Escalating violence. And just when we think there's a truce, you haven't retaliated around harvest time, you come and you raid my family's farm at night and torch it so that we have no food for the winter. This is the type of escalating violence that was very common in the ancient Near Eastern world. And this is the mess that God is speaking into during the time of the Ten Commandments. This was the culture that the Israelites would have encountered encountered time and time again as they came out of Egypt, wandering through the desert, and are going to go into the promised land. And so God, in his mercy and his accommodating grace, gives them a command that they can handle. (laughs) Stop killing each other. Do not murder. In terms of escalating violence and revenge, the case law of Exodus 21, so the chapter that comes right after the Ten Commandments, gives us what is known as the lex talionis. You know this by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a burn for a burn. This type of law sounds barbaric, but it was actually civilized compared to what was preceding it. What was preceding it was this escalating violence, You cut off my hand, I'm going to take your leg. You cut off my leg, I'm going to take your life. And so, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was actually stopping the bleeding of the systemic escalating violence. But the command, do not murder, didn't just include things like premeditated murder. It didn't just include things like revenge killing. It also uh, applied to accidental death caused by negligence. So uh, you're a farmer. You've got a team of oxen, six oxen, let's say, and they run your, your disc or your, your whatever, your plow. And they're all pretty good oxen except for one you know has this mean streak. And you know it's just a matter of time. He's almost gored you with his horns when you're putting him up, and you just don't do anything about it. And one day, he, he gores the neighbor kid and kills the neighbor kid. The Bible actually talks about that and says that you knew that that animal had a problem. You are held responsible for the murder of that person. It's kind of like how we would be held responsible if we knew our brakes were going out and we were just trying to save money and we didn't fix it and we go and we cause a major accident, right? That's, that's a problem. That's on us. Thousands of years before OSHA, for example, before OSHA was requiring hard hats and safety shoes and safety goggles and all those kind of things, uh, the Bible talked about putting handrails up on the top of your roof. Many houses back then were flat roofs, and so people would entertain up there or sit on top with chairs in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. 
And the Bible, I mean, it's crazy. Before OSHA talks about putting handrails up there and that if you're entertaining people, you have people over at your house and they fall off the roof and you don't have a handrail, that you're liable for that death. So this command also talks about negligence and harming people. The point being that the working out of the commandment against murder clearly has more to say about human life than merely just don't take it. And that makes perfect sense when you consider that in the beginning, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we learn that every human being is made in the image of God. And as an image bearer of God, your life is not mine to take. Your life is not mine to to mess with. Your life is not mine to uh, put at risk because I want to save money and time and not put a handrail up on, on my dangerous part of my high deck or something like that. In the context of the Ten Commandments, you might even say that to take a life through murder or through negligence is in some way breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Because the one who takes a human life made in the image of God is doing something that only God is authorized to do or one of God's authorized agents is authorized to do. Now today, thank goodness, we don't amputate every kind of injury. Antibiotics, MRI, CT scans, arthroscopic surgery techniques, and advanced medical training have all come to close to the battlefield just as they have in an urban uh, high-tech hospital. And today, as followers of God, merely not killing isn't good enough. Jesus has come to battlefield earth. He has brought good news and a good way of living with him. People before the law were barbarians stuck in cycles of escalating violence. People who followed the law, thou shalt not murder, were civilized. But Jesus doesn't want you to be civilized. He wants you to be gospelized. And that's a level higher than mere civilization. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, do not forget begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes describe the posture that the people uh, have the, who follow Jesus, the qualities that gospel people will develop as they follow Jesus. And the very first Beatitude is absolutely essential to receiving the rest of the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody just tell me what the first Beatitude is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is such an incredible verse. Soak it in. It does not say blessed are the really intelligent. Blessed are the people who have a really fat Bible. Blessed are the people who vote for this party or that party. Blessed are the people who are American or Canadian or South. You know, it doesn't say any of those things. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we look at Jesus' teaching on murder, you will likely begin to feel a little uncomfortable. If you're listening, you're going to be challenged and even convicted. You might even feel a little defeated. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember that. Jesus does not want you to be defeated, but he wants you and me to be humbled. Because in our humility, when we recognize that we're poor in spirit, then we can actually know our need for him and embrace him and say, I am so thankful for you who has done this for me. 
Jesus is giving us in the Sermon on the Mount a vision of what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he's inviting, now here's the secret, it's what life in the kingdom will look like when it comes in full. Right? And it looks really good. Like, wouldn't you love to just be free of anger and free of lust and free of, of feeling like you had to um, say, oh, I swear, because half the time you don't tell the truth or you tell white lie. Just to be so free to be whole. That's what we have to look forward to in the kingdom. But Jesus, here's the secret, when we begin to follow him now, invites us to start living that way, empowers us to start living that way, slowly but surely through his spirit. And Jesus is giving us a vision of how to live not civilized but gospelized you've heard that it was said you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court now, jesus's audience when he said those words yep uh, we we agree with that one wholeheartedly that's exactly what the law says the court here by the way liable to the court that means judgment judgment before god okay it's metaphorical the one who murders will face judgment yep every jew believed that Jesus' audience was like, yep, that's what Moses said. That's what we're teaching. You go, Jesus. But now Jesus is going to turn back the tourniquet a little bit and reveal the heart behind God's law. Jesus knows that behind murder and behind revenge, there is anger. There is hatred. There is the warped human heart. And so he says, but I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother or sister shall be liable to the court. Same sentence as the person who kills someone. And in the Greek, there's two ways to say anger. Of course, you knew I was going to say something like that, right? But uh, the, the first is thumos. Thumos. Can you say thumos? It sounds like thermos. And it's from where we get the word thermal or heat. And just as you might guess, it means to flare up or to burn. And it's the type of burning that you might uh, happen in a match where it just thermos, it just flares up really quickly and then it burns out or, or like a small brush fire or hey, fast and then gone. Thermos is not, or, thermos is not the word used in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus isn't against anger, and you need to hear that, because I don't know about you, but I grew up in a household where anger in general was just bad. Um, all you counselors out there are trying to like, oh yeah, okay, you got problems. Uh, I've worked on a lot of stuff like this, but, uh, uh, but anger is not good or bad. It is an emotion uh, that sometimes is right to have, and God gives us this emotion, um, and God gets angry. Jesus gets angry, uh, and in fact, I think there would be something wrong with me, wrong with you, if we did not get angry when we're in the face of injustice. You know, think, think of some topics that really just make your blood boil. You know, as a, as a dad, I, I think of the human trafficking. I think of kids that are sold into slavery or stolen into slavery, and it makes me angry. And it should make us angry because that's not right. That is unjust, Right? Um, uh, some of the racism stuff going on in the country today should make us angry, uncomfortable. Um, th this is thumas. This is stuff that is normal and good. This is what God gave it to us for. So anger is not good or bad. It's something that God gave us the capacity for. But here's the deal with anger. It's easy to get mastered by it. And if we get mastered by anger, if it becomes obsessive, then we cease to be whole and we, for, we turn into a kind of an ogre, okay? Which I use that word because the second word for anger in the New Testament and the one used here is orge. 
which you might think of ogre, right? And we're not, kids, we're not talking about the Shrek kind of funny ogre that eats his boogers and stuff like that, but we're talking about like a mean ogre, like through and through, like beastly type personality that is bent on anger. It's part of the person. It is the kind of anger that is fostered and mold over, and just when they start to feel peace, they say, no, I'm not going to allow myself to feel peace because this anger gives me power, and this anger protects me because I've been hurt, that is orge. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. In his book, Helping Hurting People, or Helping Angry People, Rod Wilson says, anger is an experience that occurs when a goal or value or an expectation that I have chosen has been blocked. Anger is something that occurs when my sense of personal worth is threatened. And this experience... And listen to this. I mean, this is true if you've experienced anger, right? It involves your emotions. It involves physiology, heart, stress. It involves cognitive processes. Like when we dwell on anger, don't we play out scenarios in our head? Oh, this is what I would do, or this is what I want to do. And it expresses itself toward others, onto others, oftentimes uncontrollably pukes out onto others in in harmful ways. And now we get to the heart of it. See, because when we're angry, we hurt others. When we feel disrespected, when we feel threatened, offended. And if we allow this orgate, anger, to dwell, it will master us and it will poison our relationships. You might not kill someone, with orge, but you might kill a relationship and leave a wake of destruction in your, in your path. Jesus says that when we perpetuate orge, anger toward others, we're guilty of judgment. The Apostle Paul gives us a warning against this type of anger in Ephesians 4. He tells the followers of Jesus, hey, put away anger. Like, it's that easy, Paul, right? Uh, why? Because we can't wield anger properly. You know, oftentimes it's pointed out, oh, Jesus was angry. He flipped over those tables. Remember, he had the whip and all. Well, yeah, that's Jesus. I know that I, even when I have a righteous reason to be anger, it's never 100% pure. There's always a part of me that's impure in that anger. And so we can't wield it well. It's, it's, It's best not to hold on to it because it will dominate us. And in our sin nature, we distort anger. Anger can be intoxicating and it it can quickly turn from righteous anger into the self-righteousness because it makes us feel powerful. And once anger starts to make us feel powerful and protected, then it's very hard to let go of. When you and I harbor anger towards other people, we begin to dehumanize them, to think of them as less than a whole and complete person worthy of our love and time. And so Jesus goes on to say, whoever says to his brother or sister, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the council. The word there is raka. Uh, Kids, you guys use that one at school very often? You ever call someone raka? No, me neither. (laughs) Yeah, it's really a fun word too because it's an Aramaic construct, so you get the, like the Hebrew-esque guttural, you gotta have a little spit to do it right but it's like rock it's a horrible it would it would have been terrifying for someone to call you that back in the day and what it means is it 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 comes from an aramaic word that simply means empty and so it's like calling someone stupid 
or empty-headed or insignificant or unworthy of consideration. In warfare, soldiers, it's frequent to find nicknames for the enemy. Um, you know, you maybe base a nickname on their ethnicity or on their culture or on their religion and, you know, all kinds of horrible things from uh, calling Germans krauts to towel heads for, uh, you know, people with turbans or uh, Yankees, if, uh, you know, against the United States. And, and once we begin to find these alternative names that make a person a little less a person, it becomes easier to kill them. After all, I'm not killing an image-bearing human being. I'm just killing a worthless fill-in-the-blank. And this type of dehumanization is cause for guilt, Jesus says, when we begin to use these names that break down someone's worth. And finally, he warns against those who call their brothers or sisters fools. Not like, come on, you fool. Not like Mr. T, fool, but literally the type of word that comes from the Greek moros, which has a double connotation. The first is morally lacking, and the second is religiously lacking. It's a double whammy word. In the Psalms, for example, moros, or fool, is the one who denies the existence of God. And so by calling someone a fool in this, the meaning of this word, you're attacking their moral character and their relationship to God himself. You're making judgments on one of God's image bearers that you have no right to make. And the guilt incurred by doing this is enough to face judgment as well, says Jesus. Thou shall not murder. Jesus agrees with that statement. And he's showing us that just because we haven't shot someone or stabbed them or taken their life breath away, it doesn't mean we're innocent of murdering relationships. Jesus isn't calling anger the same thing as murder. Hear me there. But he is addressing the sickness of the angry heart that if it doesn't always lead to physical murder, it slowly kills those around us when we harbor that kind of dehumanizing anger. It's just what happens. And if that's not motivation enough for you, it also kills you. It's a horrible poison. In fact, there's lots of uh, uh, cases of depression that are directly caused by repressed anger, this frustration that we're not willing to let go of. And, and let me tell you this. Ask any of our counselors in here too. If you don't deal with something on the inside like that, it, it will come out. You think you've got it taken care of, that it's pushed down, but it will come out. And it will come out in a physical way. It will come out and spew out into all kinds of people. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He wants us to be free and to thrive in life and not to harbor this type of dehumanizing anger. Now, the question is, of course, well, what do we do? Thanks a lot, Chris. You just told me a bunch of stuff about myself that now I feel stuck. Um, because if you struggle with anger, you know how debilitating it can be. I don't want to react that way, but I just always do. It's what I was modeled for me. It's how I'm used to living. So what do we do with the first step? And I'm going to ask you for an open mind and open heart because it's, Sunday, it's kind of Sunday schooly. Let me just wake up. The first step is always to receive what was done by Jesus. Jesus knows your heart. And he knows the murder that is sometimes in our hearts. He knows. He knows the poison of anger that can lead to dehumanizing other people. He knows those of you who are recipients of that kind of anger. He knows we're stuck, and so he came to rescue us. 
We deserve judgment, but Jesus took our guilt and our shame when he died on the cross. Like, that never gets old. I know that that's Sunday schooly, but that's really what happened. He saw us stuck, and he came to save us. Jesus had all the power in the universe. He had the authority to retaliate against his own accusers, and yet he was nonviolent. It was his nonviolent love that was the most manly thing I've ever heard of, and he took all of that on for us. Jesus offers us forgiveness, not only for the things we've done and said in anger, but also for the anger that still lurks within us. And he does one better than forgiveness. Through faith in Jesus, we're invited to live in his kingdom and live by his power. Jesus offers us new life that replaces our anger with shalom and with true peace. That's the gospel. That's part of this thing. How do we receive that life? Well, we receive it through confession and through repentance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where we start. And in terms of our anger, we could pray something like this, Lord, I don't know what to do. Sometimes I get so angry. Sometimes I feel out of control. Help me. That's a poor in spirit posture. Lord, I don't know if I can forgive the person that hurt me. Will you help me to want to forgive? Will you change my heart from the inside out? That's a poor in spirit kind of prayer. Lord, I confess that my anger hurts others, but I can't see any other way to vent my frustration. I try, but in the moment, this comes out. Have mercy on me. Change me, Lord. That's a blessed are the poor in spirit kind of prayer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who confess their need for Jesus to save. So the first thing is to receive what Jesus has done. Only he can rescue us. Only he can forgive. And only he can change us from the inside out. By the way, oftentimes with the help of people walking with us, whether that's a spiritual friend or a professional counselor or therapist or pastor or some combination, usually it takes a community, doesn't it? That's a whole other topic, but I will say this, that there's very rarely the magic bullet that when you pray a prayer, you just are transformed like that. But he gives us resources. And there's a bunch of people here filled with the Spirit as well with different disciplines and different perspectives, and we can help each other. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets our attention, doesn't he, by convicting nearly every one of us of anger and the murder that is in our hearts. It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, I've got your attention. Now listen to these words of life. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your offering there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and present your offering. And then he follows that up with, hey, if you are on the way to the court with your opponent at law, make right with them on the way. Uh, so that you won't be handed over to the officer and then the officer to the judge and then you'll be thrown into prison because you're going to stay there a long time until you paid up the last cent. Jesus gives two examples and they cover everything. I mean, they cover the religious, like gathered with the people of God thing at the altar and they cover the other six days, everything out in the world. Take note, both of these examples place human relationships at a premium One commentator wrote, God doesn't want to listen to those who won't speak to a brother or sister. 
Now, I think that's a bit extreme. I think, you know, sometimes you have a problem and he'll listen to you anyway. But don't miss the point. In Jesus' example, the person has taken time to come to the temple. They have purchased an offering, either like a, an offering for forgiveness or an offering of thanksgiving to God. So they've purchased it. They've come to the temple from wherever they're from, and they're there at the altar. I mean, they've made it up there. And Jesus is saying, this is so important to me that you're right with your brothers and sisters, with you, your human relationships, that it's more important to reconcile with them before you come and do this religious thing. That's a powerful statement. True worship leads to action. So if there's a problem between two image bearers of God, the truest act of worship would be to try, as much as it depends on us, to reconcile with that brother or sister. Thou shalt not murder. I just want to say this kind of as an aside. Notice this doesn't talk about capital punishment. We're not talking about self-defense. We're not talking about military. We're not talking about police force. We're not talking about all of that. There's lots to talk about. Um, in the passage, Matthew 5, uh, 38 through 48, it talks about turning the other cheek. Um, it talks about uh, praying for our enemies. Um, I preached on those things. They have their own like long sermons and we deal with some of those issues, okay? So I, that's on our website. I encourage you, if you're interested in those things, listen to, the, to, the, to that sermon. But this one, let's, uh, it's enough to stay here with Jesus's words for this evening. They're just convicting us about anger. After all, solve this piece of our broken hearts about anger, and the answer to those other questions, I think, will become much more clear for us. So what can we do? First step we looked at was receive what Jesus has done. Receive the new life he wants to give us. And now, in the power of this life-changing spirit we've received from Jesus, we're shown what to do. If our brother or sister has something against us, we're to go and try as best we can to be reconciled to them. Now, Matthew 18, uh, we're, in Matthew 18, we're taught that if a brother or sister has offended you, uh, we're to go to that brother or sister in Christ, right? Because they're a follower of Jesus and they shouldn't have done this bad thing to us. And we're supposed to go uh, one-on-one with them and say, hey, you offended me. Or, or that really hurt my feelings, or I think what you did was, was wrong. And if they won't listen to you, you're supposed to take uh, one or two others with you and then take the church with you. And so if someone has offended you in Matthew 18, you're supposed to go and try and make it right. But this is so different than Matthew 18. Jesus is more radical in this section because he says the gospelized person will not wait for someone to come seek an apology the gospelized person is the person filled with Jesus' life. They will go and take the initiative. And this can play, take place, I think, in two major realms. And here we're going to kind of wrap this up. The first realm is in the personal life. If you think someone in your family or uh, your workplace or in the church, someone was offended maybe by your action or inaction or insensitivity or something you said or did, this word is telling us to go. Before they come to us and say, hey, you hurt my feelings, we're to go first. And, and, and maybe before we do that, we just spend a moment in prayer. I've got a funny feeling that maybe what I said came off wrong, and so I'm going to pray, Lord, do I need to go confess something? Do I need to go at least make sure and make this right? Lord, is there something left undone here? That's what the, Jesus says, that's the gospelized life. As we go, we take the initiative. We don't wait for someone to come to us. 
But the second arena is the social life. And this is the one that is easier to kind of let go. Who hasn't felt, for example, the angst of racial tension lately? You know, even here in Bellingham, um, fairly monochrome, uh, the news brings into our living rooms, it brings onto our smartphones the reports of racial injustice. You and I, we may have not done nothing wrong individually, uh, but what would it look like as a brother or sister in Christ to talk to someone who's in our sphere of influence, in our world, who is from a minority, and instead of just being nice to them and pretending like everything's okay, like literally, like seriously ask, like, how are you feeling with all of this? Help me to understand, because I, I don't, I, I, I'm a middle-class white man. I don't get it, but help me to understand. Is there anything I can do to advocate for you? Is there anything we can pray about? What, what can I do? Uh, or or t- take anything, take, um, take gender, for example, how can we better understand each other when there's injustices going on out there? Just, just talking to people, taking the initiative as the person who hasn't done the offending, but maybe represents a group who has, or at least represents a group of power, because we have voice. The same could be said for issues of immigration or religion or any of these things. There is a deep distrust and anger and brokenness in our world. God's ointment for the sickness is the peace of Jesus. But his plan for applying that ointment to these broken places is you in the church. And the power for doing that impossible and intimidating work is the Holy Spirit. We receive when we receive from Jesus the new life. I'm going to invite us uh, to pray, and um, we're going to take communion in just a moment. So I, I thought I would make the end of this sermon prayer a prayer of confession, and to help me do that, um, I've got this wonderful book by Barry Shepherd called Prayers from the Mount. Uh, this guy has written a morning and evening prayer for every beatitude and section in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to read uh, his prayer uh, about anger. Uh, This is just a portion of it. Let this be our prayer of confession. Lord, resentment, bitterness, grudges, those angers with a long, slow-burning fuse are much more deadly than the flash in the pan, more destructive, more destructive of my peace of mind, my health, my spiritual welfare. Burns the poet describes someone as nursing her wrath to keep it warm. And I know exactly what he means because I've lived it for myself. There's a sweet and cloying comfort to be found in grievance, cherishing, in spending days and months, even years, in sullen, sulking, brooding rage. It can cultivate a just and righteous feeling, a clear conviction that one is suffering for a cause, a principle, a moral point that must not be conceded. And yet, I know all too well that such anger can be fatal, 
devastating to marriages and friendships, promoting stress and tension, the onset of disease. Such anger kills just as surely, if not as swiftly, as a knife or a gun or a bomb. Help us to recognize our anger, Father. Even those long-suppressed hostilities and hurts that cripple us and make misery for our neighbors. Then lead us into life that is so radiant with your presence, so elevated with your grace, that all bitterness is washed away. In Christ, the Lord of life, we pray. Amen.